all the leaders who want to stay in power indefinitely, they try to rally the people, to mobilize the people by using external threats, um, saying that we need to be stronger in the international arena. This is like a very common tactic. Last spring, Konstantin Sonin left Moscow, where he was teaching at the Higher School of Economics, and headed to Chicago to join the Chicago Harris faculty. Sonin has since settled into his new role at Harris, where he was recently named the John Dewey Distinguished Service Professor. But over the last year, Russia has continued to make serious headlines. Media outlets have grappled with the country's bombing campaigns in Syria and expressed serious economic concerns about Russia's budget deficit, its declining oil prices, and the collapse of the ruble. So today, we are sitting down with Professor Sonin to get his perspective on these issues, both as a Russian emigrant and as a renowned political scientist. We'll also hear about his recent trip to the Iowa caucuses and why he suspects that Vladimir Putin's regime is coming to an end. But first, what exactly does he make of Russia's supposed economic downturn? I think most of the things that you mentioned, they are true. The ruble is devalued and um, real incomes fallen, but there is no a kind of any kind of apocalyptic crisis in Russia. There is a bad economic situation. There is uh, not that much of a good perspective, but there is also nothing catastrophic or nothing apocalyptic in Russia. I, did you would you agree that a lot of the tone of the coverage here in the States was blowing out of proportion then? It's a kind of exaggerating, and this is probably a kind of normal. Nobody pays attention to the Russian economy uh, when everything is going okay. And then when it goes badly, then people start to pay attention and discover that Russia is actually a developing country. It's a kind of a rich developing country, but uh, there are a lot of tens of millions of very poor people and living conditions are not very great and health services are not very great. So the kind of the status of the economy is bad, but over the last 30 years, we had a much more severe crisis, like the crisis of 1919 that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union was a much, much bigger economic crisis, much, was much more of economic catastrophe. So now it's just uh, both stagnation, probably for long-term reasons, and coupled with falling oil prices, which brought in a short-term crisis, but there is nothing catastrophic about that. And what would you say is the biggest, the most worrying problem? Is it the oil? I think that that the main concern is that the Russian economy stopped growing by uh, 2011 or maybe even by 2009. So uh, it stopped growing when the oil prices were high. The oil prices were historically very high in 2011 and 2012, but the Russian economy was not growing and probably for kind of big reasons, for institutional reasons. The fact is that all the institutions that should be in place uh, to ensure growth of a modern and uh, relatively rich economy, these institutions were not there. The state institutions are completely archaic. Such as what? Oh, I, I, I mean, we have a completely archaic political system. I mean, political decisions are made either by bureaucrats who are not accountable or at the very uh, at the very top level by the president uh, who surrounded himself by his childhood friends who became old billionaires in the last 10 years. The point is not that they are all corrupt. They're obviously they're 
all very corrupt. But the thing is that uh, it's a completely inefficient system that like the major state companies, and these are the biggest companies in the Russian economy, the CEOs are just friend, personal friends of the president. So the main problem is that they run completely incompetently. So this is a major drug on Russian development. Russia has a lot of uh, good entrepreneurs. It has a lot of human potential, but the, this archaic state of political system, the uh, corruption, the political uh, dependence of courts, this was a major drug on development. So these are the main reasons why the Russian economy stagnated. Why do you think there's such a misunderstanding? Why do you think we're, we're not really paying attention to the day-to-day operations of the Russian economy until something dramatic happens? Is it, is it just that, um, is it a matter of access to good information, or is it just kind of typical, nothing's interesting until it is scary? Uh, fr- frankly, I think that the main reason why Americans do not pay attention to Russia is that there are 220 countries in the world, and there are uh, a couple of dozens of big important countries and Russia is one of these big important countries but this is generally true, this is normal that you pay attention only when something dramatic happens. I mean uh, nobody pays attention to the state of the German economy although the German economy is one of the dominant economies uh, in the world basically because they're not moving very fast, not as fast as the United States but they're kind of uh, a very stable system so nobody pays attention. The same with some other countries. So when Russian economy was in a very bad shape back 20 years ago, everybody paid attention to this, thinking that, I don't know, there is a famine or something like in Russia, although there was no actual famine in Russia. Then the Russian economy started to improve thanks to the oil prices, thanks to the reforms of the 90s, and uh, there was less attention paid to this. Now, when Russia is making such a major threatening moves at the international skin, everybody started to pay attention and notice that the state of the economy is not that great. So the political situation is influencing the way we're thinking about the economic situation. I think the political situation, the international relations situation, is the reason why there is so much attention to Russia. And is that also the case in Russia? Are actual Russians suddenly paying more attention and worrying more about this, or has that not changed? Uh, This is one of the puzzles that puzzled me for 40 years that I lived in Russia, that uh, we Russians are very interested in international affairs. So if you take a Russian newspaper or Russian news website, you will see that news about what United States do or say and what is happening in, say, Syria or Turkey is like the most important news. If you talk to a person, even a person in the street, then they will talk about President Obama or Bashar, uh, President Bashar Assad of Syria and things like this. And compared to the United States, I mean, we pay so much more attention to international relations. I mean, people would would not talk about rising prices, although prices are rising, not about the dire status of the healthcare system. They will talk about the international relations. Why is that? I, I, I do not 
I do not have a good explanation of this. In, in, in Russia, I have always been a kind of isolationist, isolationist uh, meaning that I have always thought that the Russian government and the Russian people should concentrate on solving economic problems, healthcare, education, like very basic things, and the international relations, and say, building military capacity is a, basically a kind of secondary things. But I have always been in a minority with this position. Although it's not, it's not clear whether half of the Russian population would support President Putin if there were um, democratic elections. And I actually think that he would lose a vote because otherwise he would agree to participate in, a, in elections if he had a chance to win them. But I have no doubt that the majority of population is very happy what Russia does in Syria, although most of the people, most of people do not uh, know the details of Russians' involvement in Syria, but it makes it makes people proud that we are hitting something, that we are bombing so- something. And th- there were in the United States. I think there were people who had the same feelings in 2003, but it was not. I, I think it was not so overwhelming. And I mean, this Syria thing. Even among Russian intellectuals, people are kind of happy that we are finally hitting someone, regardless of whom we are hitting and what is going to bring us. Do you think that sort of focus on international affairs is engineered to distract from domestic issues that are not being resolved by the government? I, I think most of the leaders, like historically and around the world, all the leaders who want to stay in power indefinitely, they try to a kind of um, rally the people to mobilize the people by using external threats, um, saying that we need to be stronger in the international arena. This is like a very common tactic, and you see this everywhere, from Latin America to Africa, even in Britain. And I think uh, the Putin government did a lot in this direction, but not I do not think that this is like the primary cause of Russia's militaristic attitude. I think it's actually the population that was very receptive to this kind of propaganda and mobilization. Is there some kind of pocket that doesn't agree with that majority? There are a lot of individuals who opposed Russia's intervention in Crimea and somewhat less people, but there were people who opposed Russian intervention in Syria. All of these people are outside of the regular political institutions, so among uh, politicians uh, who have any kind of elected positions, nobody actually was speaking against against war or militarization. Uh, of course, uh, Boris Nemtsov, who was killed a year ago near the Kremlin, he was a prominent opponent of Russia's involvement in Ukraine, and he would obviously be an opponent of involvement in Syria. But he was killed, so I think some people are genuinely scared to talk about these things. Obviously, you've done a good deal of research in um, political economy. You know, as the economy takes what sounds like a relatively temporary downturn, but also as growth, longer-term growth slows, and as the state clenches down, what would you expect to see based on the research that you've done, the models you've created? Uh, uh, okay, first uh, to describe what is going on in Russia. I need to note that Russia is not a totalitarian state, and it's not like uh, we do not have a Stalin or a Hitler 
as the head of state, and this is not a totally police regime. But still, uh, the Putin's regime popularity relies on repression to a big extent. And during the last couple of years, we've seen uh, dozens of people jailed for posting something on social media or websites, which is, of course, totally inconsistent with any kind of freedom of speech. Still, there are a lot of people who are free to express whatever uh, they say. So when I was in Russia, and still I'm still writing a column for a Russian newspaper, I could say whatever I want to say. So you see both things. There are dozens of people currently in jail. At the same time, there are a lot of public intellectuals who speak uh, against the regime. At least there are outlets. They would not appear on state television or basically on any television, but there are outlets that that would publish these voices. Also, you could see that there are a lot of people who either immigrated or temporarily left Russia in the recent years. There are dozens or maybe hundreds of Russian intellectuals and thousands of Russian businessmen in London and around Europe. So this is a kind of a very visible thing and this is obviously a signal that uh, the regime is not a kind of soft. It's, it's, it's quite cruel. And you could wonder why people, Putin himself and people around him, they're so sure that they're so popular. Because if you're popular, you do not need to repress people. You do not need to put people in jail for writing something uh, about Putin on his Facebook page. And I think what our experience, our models show, is that all of these repressions they should increase, they should accelerate toward the end of the Putin rule. I mean, uh, there's no question that we are kind of in the final stage of the Putin rule. Like this final stage might take 10 years, it might be 15 years, but it's a kind of, uh, obviously it's downwards. And uh, I mean, history teaches us that no ruler has succeeded to rule indefinitely, right? So, So I think the level of repression, the intensity of repression will be growing. And explain why that is what you would predict. One thing that the economic situation changes to the worse, and although this change is not dramatic and not catastrophic, it's definitely changed to the worse. And people are more and more unhappy, and the um, government policy is less and less efficient, and the regime and the President Putin himself puts more and more emphasis on loyalty. So the competent people are driven out of the government, they are driven out of presidential administration, and uh, the loyal people are kept in place. For example, for the uh, last couple of years, uh, President Putin uh, has the following dilemma. He cannot replace the Prime Minister Medvedev, who, who was a figurehead president a couple of years ago, and he's like kind of a totally incapable political political figure with no uh, following, no no clout. He's just um, a very bad pri- prime minister because he's so weak. But Putin fears to replace him with a more efficient prime minister, with some technocrat, for example, because if someone is appointed to this very important position, the second uh, most important position in the country, then this person will be immediately uh, thought of as a possible replacement for Putin himself. So he's a kind of, he's stuck with this totally inefficient and incapable person because he cannot replace him with a, even kind of a really a political technocrat is impossible at this stage. And this happens uh, in many positions. 
So uh, he, Putin is more and more stuck with his personal circle of friends, and this is very inefficient, and I think this will continue up until the very end of the regime. And in terms of regime change, uh, you've done some research on sort of how radicals push each other in opposite directions towards the political extremes. Is that right? I think uh, this time uh, in this country, in Russia, we will not have challenges from the radical part. In Russia, historically, the replacement is within the ruling, within the ruling elite. So I think the Putin's power will be slipping away, and at some point there will be either kind of a velvet revolution or a more a stronger disruption, but eventually the next leader will be from the uh, from the current elite. It will not be a leader of some uh, radical faction. But why is that? I, I, I don't know. It might be that in Russia, at least at least now, there is. It, it doesn't seem that there are kind of class cleavages. Back 100 years ago, uh, the Bolsheviks they were very successful in mobilizing a small but concentrated faction of the population, the workers, basically, the proletariat. 80% of the country were peasants, but the proletariat was concentrated in the big cities. And Bolsheviks succeeded to mobilize this group, and so they were a successful group with an extremely radical agenda, which successfully took power. Now, in Russia, it does not seem that you could make these kind of cleavages, or at least I don't see them. So I think the change will be inside the, inside the elite. From my early childhood, back 35 years ago, like, uh, I was interested in American politics. So basically, I saw in the news um, President Carter crying at the inauguration of uh, uh, President Reagan. And although, of course, I thought at this time that American elections is that much of a sham as we had in the Soviet Union. I mean, in Soviet Union, we had elections, and the election was always uh, one candidate and uh, you vote for this one candidate, and then the reports were that there was 99.99% turnout and 99.99% vote for this candidate. And of course, this is totally impossible. You cannot have this kind of turnout. People, some people sleep for the whole day. Some people uh, go to their summer house, or I, I, I don't know. So you cannot have this kind of turnout. This was complete sham. But one lesson that we derived from this, that we know what elections are. So we know what are the elections in the United States. And if you study comparative political institutions, you still need to uh, read and understand American politics because this is a country with a continuous political system for 200 years, a lot of data, a lot of research, a lot of understanding. So you could watch these things as I watched during the Iowa caucuses. So what did you do while you were there? Oh, I just watched how this is going in the particular precinct that we have vi visited in the city of Davenport. Nobody spoke uh, in favor of Donald Trump. Still, one third of those who came there voted for Donald Trump. So one inference is that people were a kind of a bit of uh, ashamed of admitting that they came to vote for Donald Trump. Also, this means that 
Iowa caucuses is totally about turnout, not about at least these Republican caucuses, not about um, any kind of persuasion, any kind of interaction at the caucus place. It was about those who came there. We even seen that Ted Cruz had the best operation in the ground because when the chairman of the caucus asked for people to come and speak for two minutes in favor of candidates, obviously only the person who came uh, to talk in support of Ted Cruz had a printed speech which was obviously prepared by the campaign and tailored a kind of as if this was delivered by a um, normal folk. <laughs> Big thanks to Konstantin Sonin for taking the time to talk to us today. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Radio Harris, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Just search for Radio Harris. Today's episode was produced by me, Jake Smith. And make sure to tune in next time when we talk to presidential scholar Professor William Howell about his new book, Relic, How Our Constitution Undermines Effective Government and Why We Need a More Powerful Presidency.